for all of you English teachers out there, if you've clued in, we've talked about two elements of every good story. That's setting. We talked about two Bible characters whom God used when the setting of their story changed drastically. And that was Abraham's story and the story of Noah's wife. When God wrote their stories, he used them in mighty ways, despite their distractions and preoccupations to other events and worldliness going on around them, things that we can so easily do ourselves. Every story also has a plot going on, obviously, and to tie that into what we were talking about, we mentioned the stories of two midwives, Shifra and Pua, a father-in-law named Jethro, and a mere scribe mentioned only three times named Elishama. And though their stories seemed small and insignificant, we were reminded that when God writes our story, no matter how huge or seemingly small our story is, if God's in it, then it's a masterpiece for sure. So for this section, we're going to throw the element of characters in just so it will fit the theme of our discussion, but we've really been discussing Bible characters the whole time. So when God authored my story, he first of all gave me lots of characters in the six years that I taught public school, and I was trying to make that fit my theme, but then I thought about it and it said, makes it sound like they were all just rascals, but they really weren't. Some, a few were characters, but they were really wonderful kids that I taught. Then when we started our family, I became a stay-at-home mom, and my characters eventually turned into four little bodies. As I've mentioned to you, I seem to have this habit of writing my own story and then asking God, you know, come alongside me and bless what I'm doing. Um, You'd think I'd learn by now to let him do the writing and me walk that path, but, well, I'm a slow learner, I guess. So um, I knew I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but in my novel, I planned to go back to work when the youngest started school. Well, in a number of ways, God revealed to me that his plan was for us to homeschool our kids. Part of that was we were moving often, so often in the Navy, you know, they, they just didn't have anything consistent in their lives, except mom and dad. Um, and sometimes we moved every three years, sometimes it was two, one time we even moved after one year. Um, but so I, I believed that he wanted, um, it was his plan for us to homeschool, but I still kept attempting to write my own scenes into the novel, and I thought the kids would eventually be in school. But it turns out when God wrote my story, he planned on me homeschooling all four through high school. So I did eventually get the message and say, okay, God, I got it now. But um, so when I graduated Jeremy and he started at Georgia Southern, at the end of the first semester, his very first report card, I didn't give grades, so I called that his uh, report card, um, he had all A's, 4.0. So I was pleased. And then the next semester, he had a 4.0. So I held my shoulders a little higher. And by the third semester of 4.0, I said, dang, I was a good teacher. (laughs) Well, you know, God has a sense of humor and subtle ways of reminding us who's really in control. And by the time my second one started college at Georgia Southern, I very quickly learned perhaps it wasn't the teacher after all. Um, Jennifer made stellar grades. She really did. But what might have taken some, taken some students 30 minutes, well, it took her well over an hour. And she just begged me to study with her at night. And I'd call out stuff I couldn't even understand because or pronounce because she was majoring in biology like her daddy. But um, so we laugh about it now, but there were many nights we'd fall asleep in mid-sentence of studying for an exam, and it was really funny because 
One time she was trying to describe to me about mitochondria, and she said, it's the part of the body, and she dozed off, and she said, and we got in line for the bus at Disney. <laughs> so those were how most of our studying nights went. It just, um, it, it took a lot to, to get her through a test, but she always did well. She always did well. And God also has blessed my other students with very good grades. Um, as, as I think um, Wendy shared, uh, Jeremy's currently an elementary school counselor in Dawsonville, Georgia, and loves it. Jennifer is married to Adam, and they both work for their church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, Jeb Daniel just started his master's in accounting at Georgia Southern, and the baby, Jessica, is a sophomore PR major at Georgia Southern. And I feel so blessed to have been gifted uh, by God with these four children to raise here on earth, and I'm so glad their salvation is secure. But that doesn't mean we didn't have struggles over the years. However, I am so thankful that we didn't have the struggles that Absalom had in the Bible. Um, You know, when God wrote Absalom's story, he had good things in mind for him, and we know that because of our theme verse. For we are God's masterpiece— He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. But Absalom apparently wanted to write his own story and didn't heed God's word. It appears that Absalom had a pride issue and is implied in 2 Samuel 14.25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. And oh my, did his behavior go downhill from there. Um, You know, talk about a bunch of dysfunctional children uh, David had. Um, You know, I'm not even going to read all the verses because I think the movie would be rated R because of the elements of rape, incest, murder, deception, revenge, dishonesty, disobedience, and more. Towards the end, when Absalom attempted to usurp his father's power and had enlisted other men to be on his side, he went galloping off into the woods. Second Samuel 18.9 says, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Well, it gets gory again after that verse, but suffice it to say, there's very little good things to say about Absalom in the Bible. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed his father, David. It wasn't the story God wanted for Absalom, but his sinful choices left him with an awful legacy. You know, besides the obvious huge mistakes he made, it seems as if he didn't listen to anything his parents tried to teach him because surely his mama said, now Absalom, if you go off riding into the woods, you better put that hair in a ponytail or a man bun at least because his story could have been completely different, but he didn't listen to his mama. Um, You know, Absalom's blip on the timeline seems more like a blight, yet God's word often teaches us what not to do as well as what we should do. There's much to be learned about his sinful behavior and disobedience. God uses another sinful man and a talking donkey to fulfill his purposes in Numbers 22. You probably know the story of Balaam, so for the sake of time, here's a quick refresher. 
Balaam, a sorcerer, was summoned by King Balak of the Moabites to curse the Israelites as Moses was leading them towards Canaan. King Balak promised to pay Balaam handsomely for bringing evil upon the Hebrews whom he feared. In the night, God came to Balaam and, uh, you know, told him not to go. And at first, Balaam sent the messengers away. But, um, and the Bible's not specific about this, but I have a feeling they must have offered more money because by the second time they came around, uh, Balaam agreed to go. Um, but he was warned by God, only do what I tell you. On the way, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of God standing in their path, brandishing a sword. The donkey turned, and that drew a beating from Balaam. And the second time the animal saw the angel, she pressed up against a wall, crushing Balaam's foot, and again he beat the donkey. And the third time the donkey saw the angel, she lay down underneath Balaam, and he beat her severely with a staff. And at that, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and he said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And the Bible says, after Balaam argued with the beast, the Lord opened the sorcerer's eyes so that he too could see the angel. And the angel scolded Balaam, but he did allow him to go on and ordered him to only speak uh, what God had told him. And so the king took Balaam to several mountains and ordered him to curse the Israelites, but every time he just um, professed blessings over the Hebrew people. And finally, he prophesied the deaths of pagan kings and told about a star that would come out of Jacob. So, uh, you know, God used a sinful pagan and a talking donkey to fulfill his purpose. And apparently Balaam knew God and did indeed carry out his commands, but his love of money and evilness and sorcery and divination were more important to him than his love of God. And his inability to see the Lord brought to light his spiritual blindness. And, you know, who can't but chuckle slightly that he didn't think it was odd that a donkey was talking to him. That's what I've never been able to figure out. You know, not only is he not startled, but he just argues with the animal. (laughs) And, you know, while it's somewhat easy to think of the stories of Absalom and Balaam, and we can say, yes, they didn't truly live the life God and the story God would have wanted for them, but despite their sinfulness, God used them to fulfill his plan. It's easy for us to recognize that, but hopefully we can't identify with their extreme sinfulness. However, before we let ourselves off lightly, let's think briefly about Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her chuckle of disbelief. Genesis 18 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, bake the finest flour, uh, get the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set, set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. 
Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. And now, even though I can certainly identify with Sarah's astonishment at that statement that she would bear a child, she's often reprimanded in sermons as disbelieving that God is capable of doing anything he chooses to do. Yet, we all know from that wonderful, well-known story that God does indeed fulfill his promises to both Abraham and Sarah. Well, this section was sort of a downer because we were talking about some of the characters that we discussed. They didn't necessarily have stellar spots on their time on this timeline. And maybe these guys are like an unwanted knot in some of my handiwork pieces here. Yet the message is clear. Even in disobedience, God used them, even if it's nothing more than to teach us what not to do. And even in our own disobedience, he uses us to accomplish his purposes. I just know that you're like me, and you don't really want your legacy to be uh, one of your sins alone. After all, none of us are perfect, but maybe that masterpiece that God's writing when he writes our story, maybe it will be so beautiful that others can forget the times we're caught kicking that donkey. Okay, tune into part four, and the characters won't be as villainous, I promise.